that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola, and my partner in crime, the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle, is on. And I think this is the most nerded out Pat's ever been. I think this is the most excited Pat's ever been. This is the greatest episode we will ever do. We may do equally good episodes. We will never top this. If you are from Campania and you are listening in your car, pull your car over and get on your knees for the man who was about to speak. Just stop it. You, no, no. Stop it. Naples at table changed it all. If you're in your house, get on your knees. I am in Boston. I didn't bring my gazoo and I forgot it. But I am on my knees because this man, Arthur Schwartz, no cookbook in the history of Italian America, changed the game like Naples at table. It is the greatest work on the cooking of Campania. I remember the moment I saw it at the bookstore in Sea Caucus in February of 1998. And I flipped through the pages and I was stunned because it was not only the most accurate detailing of recipes from Campania, the history and the menus married. If you want to understand Campania, you have to get Naples at the table. I will hijack this whole episode with platitudes if John does not turn me off and I feel it coming. <laughs> but we are in the true presence of greatness today and i i say that with complete confidence all right well i i i i thank you thank you thank you pat but i I have to add that the book is out of print and and there are collectible copies on the internet i noticed the other day uh that sell for 60 some odd bucks or something but there is also a digital version i think is only 10 bucks on kindle so um it's kind of a nice touch to have either way i make no money on it (laughs) people think that if you write a book and you make a lot of money usually you write write a book and you lose a lot of money because it costs you so much to write the book i mean i travel in campania for 20 years before i felt i knew enough to write a book about i gotta imagine a lot of our audience knows arthur schwartz knows naples at the table one of his latest books i guess is the southern italian table is Authentic Taste from Traditional Kitchens, which takes in the six southern regions. And we were having such a great conversation before we turned on the mic. But Arthur Schwartz is a Brooklynite like myself, and we were catching up about that history. But you're not Italian-American. You're not Southern Italian extraction. How did you find this love? Okay, let's start with my father, who grew up in a a two-family house in East New York with a Sicilian family downstairs. Huh. Anna and Jerry. Jerry made wine in the basement. Every Sunday when I went to visit my grandparents, the first thing that hit me was the smell of, of Anna's ragu, <laughs> Sunday gravy. And we ate all that too, because my father grew up eating that. And I grew up here. Then when I was born, we moved into a house with a Neapolitan family downstairs. <laughs> so I always like to say my first solid food could well have been ziti with ragu. Um, and I, I was always a hungry kid. So my mother would send me downstairs at 5, 5.30, whatever they ate dinner downstairs, way before us. My father didn't get home until 7.15. So it was a little late for a little kid, but my mother always wanted us to all eat together. So I sat at our table at 7.15, but first I went downstairs and had some ziti. Uh, so that's sort of like you grow up eating this food. It was like my second soul food. After the 
Eastern European Jewish food that my grandmother downstairs made. It was Italian food. Plus, I grew up in Marine Park where everybody was either Jewish, Italian, or Irish. The Jews and the Italians seemed to bond a little better than the Irish did with any of those groups. Yeah. But I, rec- I actually recently met a 90-something-year-old man who grew up right down the street from where I grew up. And he was not any of those things, but he was early wasp, I have to say. So there, wow. there, was a, there were a sprinkling of Protestants in the neighborhood, but really everybody was either Jewish or Catholic. Can you imagine we moved in? What they must have thought when all the immigrants moved into those waspy neighborhoods, the shock they must have had. No, it wasn't. It it wasn't really a waspy neighborhood. My neighborhood, the house I grew up in was built in 1951. But most of the houses in, in, in that part of Brooklyn were built in the 1920s when both the Italian and the Jewish immigrants from the Lower East Side were migrating to other parts of the city. They wanted to get out of the you know, the horrible tenements of the Lower East Side. So the, either you move to the Bronx, eventually to Westchester, or you move to Brooklyn, eventually to Long Island. And that's how that whole migration. When was the first time you went to Southern Italy? Ah, I was very young. Uh, it was, I'm not sure exactly what year, but it was in the late 70s. It was the first time I went to Naples, and I went on my own. And I was so naive, I bought an Omega watch on the street, <laughs> which, of course, stopped working on the plane home. <laughs> so I was very young and naive, and I was totally fascinated with Naples. Of course, growing up in Brooklyn, my father's best friend was Cesar Benvenuto. So, but he, he, was, he would identify himself as Barese, even though he was born in Corona, Queens. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and he never in his life, and he lived into his mid-80s, went to Italy. But anyway, so my first trip to Naples, I thought everybody who was Southern Italian in Brooklyn was Neapolitan. And, of course, I was totally wrong. Uh, uh, in fact, many, many years later, I was in, uh, a, small, uh, in, in a small town near Bari. And uh, my host gave me a cookbook of local recipes and it was written in Italian and in the dialect. Now, I can read Italian recipes, no problem. But the dialect, I, I could make it out. But I said to him, could you read this to me so I can hear what the dialect sounds like? And uh, as soon as he started talking, I realized what I grew up with in Brooklyn was mainly a Barese dialect, not a Neapolitan dialect. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, but I always considered this to be a very great cuisine. Uh, and I was always dismayed when fellow restaurant critics disparaged it as red sauce. I mean, you know, they use that as a, a derogatory term, red sauce cuisine. Yeah. Maybe recently, not so much. But And what's wrong with that? Tomato sauce is really good. So anyway, uh, but I always say the dirty secret of the south of Italy is they love bechamel almost as much <laughs> as tomato sauce. <laughs> that is so true. That's why I sang your hosannas. Because how many people know that? My grandma put the bechamel on the cauliflower oh. and bake it in the oven. That was like a holiday or a Sunday. You sure she wasn't Polish? No, that was, but Piano di Sorrento is a little bit like Beverly Hills when it comes to <laughs> it, 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 You know, I know yeah. Piano di Sorrento, and there is a restaurant there that I go to now. I'm try- I didn't want to mention it before because 
I couldn't think of the name. I still can't think of the name. <laughs> but um, so I, I just after my first few cookbooks, which were basically written for the money, like the first one, which is called Cooking in a Small Kitchen, I wrote because nobody took you seriously in 1978 unless you wrote a cookbook. So I did. It wasn't a great experience. So I didn't write a cookbook for many years, but then I needed to do some work in my house. So I wrote what to cook when you think there's nothing in the house to eat. Then I needed to, uh, to do more work in the house. So I wrote soup suppers, which is my best seller up to date. And then after writing these books for the money, although I think they're good books, um, I really wanted to do something from my heart and also something that might be useful. And at that point in the early mid nineties, Nobody regarded Southern Italian food with any respect. And I knew it, it deserved respect because besides that it's being a, a truly world-class cuisine, uh, nobody had actually written about it in English. So I took it on myself. And that's how Naples at Table. By the way, it's called Naples at Table because my partner is a librarian. And he swore up and down that I had to have a book that started with the word Naples. Mm. <laughs> that it couldn't be the third word. That's smart. <laughs> Second word had to be the first word. So it's Naples and Napoli a tavola, we like to say. And uh, I'm always interested in putting food in, in historical context because it makes it uh, a better work for a grown man. Yeah. <laughs> Not just recipes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because my grandfather passed away in April of 99 and we lived with him down, first with him, then down the street. And, uh, he was a truck driver, but when he came home from the war, his, his real love was his local cuisine, his, uh, we'll say Neapolitan Campania cuisine. He came from southern Salerno to America, and uh, he had a little pizzeria after the war, and it just economically didn't work out. He had to feed his family, went into truck driving, but he loved food and loved to cook and loved to read, and I remember him bringing the book home. I still have his copy, as a matter of fact. It's what oh. I... Boy, am I flattered. Oh, thank you. Uh, let me tell you, it's something that he loved. He loved the history. He loved the passion for authenticity that was in it because, you know, it is a very unique cuisine and, and it, it should be observed and uh, written about with, with love for both it and for the authentic approach to it. And, uh, yeah, it's still something I have. It's been, a, as Pat says, it's really a game-changing cookbook. Um, You're going to make me cry, John. That's true. That's well, true. I appreciate that. That's really, yeah, it, it means a lot to my family. Let me tell you, my besides your compliments and Patrick's compliments, which are touching me, the best compliment they ever got on the book was I was signing books at the Union Square Green Market, and a woman came up to me wagging her finger at me <laughs> and saying, Mr. Schwartz, and I thought I'm getting a great argument you know like i i the book is terrible but she says i gotta tell you you stole all my recipes (laughs) (laughs) of course of course that's very that's very that was a great compliment (laughs) it's as well it should be yeah i we we talk a lot about the show you know you reference like the derogatory kind of and you're right recently places like carbone and this new wave of italian american red sauce cuisine we've had a couple of great uh chefs and authors on the show like the the folks from Don Angie's come to mind and this red sauce revolution that's going on. But yeah, up until recently, I think we watched from the late seventies, early eighties, this real boom of the idea that Northern Italian was the cuisine that represented 
continental elegance and class and you know culinary and oh, it's yeah. a shame because there's so many <laughs> southern italian people in this country who don't really know the great heritage of it when you got to naples for the first time when you started exploring the cuisine what were some of the surprises that you found besides bechamel yeah besides um. bechamel, which would surprise anybody <laughs> um what was surprises i'm always surprised i gotta say uh, uh, my most recent surprise was uh, a number of years ago, six or seven years ago, I discovered that in Salerno, there are these unbelievable onions. I'm always looking for, you know, uh, very specific agricultural products. And I was talking about, oh, I know. I play a Southern Italian card game called Baracco. You know about Baracco? No. no, I can't say I've played it. Oh, all right. Well, listen, I'm old. A lot of my friends are old. <laughs> we like to sit around and play cards. <laughs> and I learned years ago this card game that everybody I know plays in Salerno. And in fact, uh, we have even participated in Baracco tournaments. And in fact, we play here at home, too. I mean, in fact, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, I have a date with another couple uh, to play Baracco. Uh, anyway, great. yeah. So, uh, and I always say it's just an excuse to eat again. Yeah. It's because I, I, we go to my friend Rosaria to play Baracco, and then afterwards she has a little snack, which consists of like eight different dishes. <laughs> and I try to live an Italian life in Brooklyn, which you can do if you retire. You sure can here. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, 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 I, I do a podcast and broadcast on an NPR station once a week, but. It doesn't take much time, but I do cook a lot. I, in fact, I made I made a, you know the Pat Lafredo meat. Sure, yeah, very well. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. So they're now selling it packaged at my supermarket. Four burgers to a package. So I made two burgers yesterday, and I wasn't impressed at all. Um, so I decided this morning I'm not going to even make the other two burgers. I'm just going to make a little ragu with mm. chopped meat. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, sure. uh, yeah, why not? So yeah. I did, and I, I like it less than the burgers. <laughs> That's not good. But, That's not promising. This is, uh, <laughs> in fact, I have some uh, sausage ragu in the freezer. I'm contemplating putting it, zapping it in the microwave to defrost it and combining with the beef to take the curse off the beef. But <laughs> anyway, just to say the mode I live in, which is wake up in the morning and make ragu for lunch. <laughs> Not a bad way to live. I, it's it's got it's got to cook for two hours minimum. Actually, I have a friend in Naples. She says you only make semi ragu, Arthur Arturo. <laughs> I said, why is it semi? She says two hours and fifteen minutes semi ragu. Got to be al menos three hours, at least three hours. I got to ask you: Do you think the terracotta pot makes a difference in ragu making? Yes. For the better. And why? Well, let me say that I have friends who insist that you have to make the ragu in an aluminum pot. Why? Because prior to World War II, that was considered way more modern than a terracotta pot. And also it did break. So I find it has a softer flavor cooked in terracotta. I do cook. I didn't today because I was only making this tiny amount. Uh, and my pot's too, even my small terracotta is too big for that. 
So I do cook it. When I'm making at least, you know, a quart or two of, of, of ragu, I will make it in a terracotta pan. You sound like fat. I don't know. I like it. What can I say? But I think it also, it doesn't get that hot. Uh, you don't get that metallic edge. Yeah, I agree with you. I've said it for years. Thank you. You're reconfirming. Oh, all this stuff. I'm like John the Baptist, and you're preaching the gospel here. I told people for years that the terracotta makes a big difference. I think it makes a difference. I think it does. I think it makes a difference for a lot of things. I mean, I I I love to put beans in my terracotta pot. Listen, I like using the terracotta pots whenever I can. I've schlepped them from Italy. <laughs> um, I schlep pottery. You sound like Pat. You two are going to be fast friends. Let me tell you, we we did a trip, a work trip in. December many years ago now and we were in Palermo we took a boat a ferry from Palermo to Naples spent time in Naples we drove to Bari I've done that we drove to Matera we drove to Molfetta back to Bari and in Bari we stumbled upon a home kitchenware store store. kitchenware store my favorite kind of store Uh, I don't know if you've seen this place it's in the in the old um, market stalls it's been there since Joaquin Murat was temporarily king of Naples during the Second Napoleonic Wars. Uh, yeah, I know all about you. Yeah. yeah, and the same families owned it. And I thought Pat was going to move there. I mean, we carted <laughs> so much stuff. It was, it was too much. I, I, I really, I got, I need help because I brought home on one trip from Italy 188 pieces oh. of uh, knives and forks. What do you call that? Serveware, dinnerware. Yeah, cutlery. Cutlery. I brought home 180 in one suitcase. <laughs> and you want to know how? You know how I pulled it off? You'll appreciate this. I can speak Neapolitan. Yeah. But I was doing work with a guy at the time who had a Neapolitan name, was Italian American, couldn't even order a cup of coffee in Italy. <laughs> so we were in the Naples uh, airport, and he goes to custom uh, to check in, and they see his name, and they start to speak to him in Italian, and he can't respond. Uh-huh. So my suitcase had to be. I'm not exaggerating. It had to be 100 pounds, right? So the girl picks it up and she just flips out on me. But she sees my name, Patrick O'Boyle, and I start speaking Nabuidan. <laughs> so this is totally overweight. You can't bring this. You have to. And I said to her, oh, what can I do? I said, my mother's poor cousin. She's old. She wanted <laughs> to send this to my mother. What am I going to say to her? What, how am I going to tell my mother she couldn't get this thing? It was all my stuff. <laughs> I said, oh, my mother's aunt's going to be heartbroken. Yeah, I'm going off and I'm going. She goes, ah, don't worry about it. She put it on the conveyor belt and away it went. Wow. <laughs> you can get stuff done in Naples. I have to travel with you, Patrick. Oh, <laughs> I got every, I can't reveal on, I've gotten, I got it down to a racket now. Naples is a very manageable city if you know the game. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Patrick, I used to take my cooking school groups to Naples because I thought, you know, we, we were based in Paston. So it was a maybe, an hour and a half with traffic even. It wasn't a bad back and forth in one day, but I realized that Americans don't get Naples in one day. You need more than a day to appreciate Naples. Yeah. Uh, I And also, you have to be a certain personality type. Like, yeah, I, I'm not going to show you what my office looks like, but it's a little chaotic itself. And also, I'm from Brooklyn, which makes a difference. My friend, uh, Maurizio De Rosa's mother, who still lives in Balmeral. She used to come to New York fairly regularly when Maurizio was here all the time. When she came to New York last time and we finally got her to Brooklyn, she says, I see why you like Naples so much. It's a lot like Brooklyn. <laughs> That's so true. 
My dad always said that. He said when the first time he went to Naples was 1979. He was in the military. My grandfather had had a heart attack and wanted to go back to his hometown. And so my dad uh, flew through the military, uh, you know, the, the planes that they take the troops over, met my grandfather and his uh, and my uncle in the town. And then they spent, I think, two weeks. And they, you know, of course, spent a bunch of time in Naples. And my dad said within five minutes, he realized this was Europe's Brooklyn. He was like, I, I felt so at home <laughs> because it was like I, I realized I basically grew up in a version of Naples, you know, and, and I think that's true. I think Brooklyn in particular. Well, Williamsburg, where you grew up in particular, too, because Williamsburg still, even with all the new construction and the million dollar condos, still looks like Europe in a lot of streets. Yeah, um, it, it really has that feeling. And I always thought about when I was a kid, my aunt Selma and Uncle Sam lived in Williamsburg, and they were the only relatives there that we visited. And I always thought, oh, my God, it, it, it's like they're living in Eastern Europe still. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the thing about Brooklyn, too, that's so different than the other boroughs is we have we have something approximating the concentration of Manhattan in terms of the art, physical architecture, particularly my part of Brooklyn. Yeah. But we don't have the same rushed and an industry and commerce going on so it's a place where you it's lived outside like naples is lived outside you you, you go to certain too. parts of brooklyn and you don't think anybody does anything inside the house you're like what, what do they do they just go in there and sleep because go to sunset park in the summer yeah yeah it could be you know you're in mexico this episode is brought to you by reese's peanut butter cups in breaking news Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Let me ask you a question. How did you start your friendship with Baronesa Cecilia? How did that all start, your long work with her? Good question. With Paranessa Cicilia. She would love that you call her that. Um, but anyway, how I did is there was a magazine. We're talking the mid-90s. It didn't last but a year or two. And it was an Italian-American magazine. I forget what it's even called. You guys might remember. And she was featured in the magazine as this great cook on, the, uh, on a water buffalo farm. So I figured I got to go meet this lady. So I went to, we went there, uh, I guess it was 1994, 95, because we went there for New Year's. And I must say, in those days, it, it wasn't as big a business as her business, her agriturismo business. It's not as big as it was then. Anyway, we immediately bonded. You know, it's like one of those things we just immediately liked each other. And she taught me what she could over the course of three or four days. But we became fast friends. We've been friends ever since. So that's all. The dirty secret is that Cecilia is not a great cook. (laughs) And she had learned the recipes that appeared in that magazine only recently. Actually, Cecilia was born in Parma. Yeah, I didn't want to out that. But yeah, I know that. (laughs) I'm not reading that. Is she genetically from Parma, or was her father like a carabinieri in Parma? No, not at all. Her father, her father was from Parma, but her father had long before she was born moved to Salerno to Battipaglia, oh, okay, okay. where he had a canning business. They canned tomatoes. In fact, a Pastene, which is still a brand, yeah, was one of the brands that he canned. 
and also uh, uh, marmalades, you know, different, because they grow a lot, a lot of fruit down there. So they would, they would process fruit into marmalade and tomatoes and put them in cans. And her father's big, big factory is still there in, in Batipaglia. Um, it, it was last time I was, it was being converted into something, you know, like every little building everywhere is going to be a condo. So, but yeah, so she's still in Batipaglia. Uh, that's the main family seat. Uh, in fact, the main street is named after her uncle and another street after her father. And Batipaglia over the years I've been going there has really boomed. But it's not boomed the way it was before the war, which is it was then the market town for mozzarella di bufala and other products. But we and both we and the uh, uh, the Germans bombed the crap out of Salerno um, and Battipaglia because it wasn't a railroad crossing, I guess, and junction is what the word I want. I did a business trip there, and one of our stops was at one of these buffalo farms and they showed us the manufacture and the milk and and then they gave us a meal and I got to have the water buffalo steak. When I travel, I like to eat the most unique ingredients I could find. Sure. And I've eaten all kinds of animal proteins, but I still think the best steak I ever had was the water buffalo in Patipalia. Really? I, yeah, I agree with that. And you know that they, they're making a big effort to market the meat because after all, if it's not a female, what are you going to do? eat it yeah yeah that's right what's it there yeah Yeah. my question is since we have the expert on the on the online right now do you think that batipaglia's mozzarella di bufala is better than caserta yes and the reason is they don't pasteurize in salerno and they do pasteurize and even for export in caserta and I know both areas pretty well, mozzarella-wise. Cecilia's cousin is one of the largest uh, breeders and producers uh, in Caserta. Um, and I've also been to small producers in Caserta. But it's the difference is the pasteurization. I had no idea. That is fascinating. It's raw milk. You know, you can't export raw milk cheese. I don't even think you can export it within Europe. I'm not sure about that. But you definitely cannot export to the U.S., for you be able to export cheese to the U.S., it has to be at least 60 days old. You do not want to eat 60-day-old mozzarella. <laughs> no, you don't. No. It's then it's scamorza. So I recently told this story, because, of course, we're in mozzarella season now. But years and years ago, uh, when I first started on the radio, some woman called. She said, I got to tell you, Arthur, my father always called that scamorza, <laughs> referring to the cheese that's wrapped in plastic. In, in, in the supermarket because we didn't have fresh or we did, but it was really hard to get freshly made mozzarella then. I'm telling, I'm talking 30, at least 30 years ago. And now I always think of it as good. It may be bad mozzarella, but it's very good scum awards. <laughs> <laughs> a very good way to look at it. Yeah. I don't think people think about the many iterations of a, of a mozzarella into scum and cascaval and all these things. Like, you know, it has m- multiple lives. Yeah, I'm totally spoiled, guys, because I've been eating mozzarella on a water buffalo farm for the last 25 years. And I compare everything to that because that's my standard. And one day we were sitting around with some guests at Celiano, and one of them said to Cecilia, how old is this cheese? 
And she looked at her watch and she said, oh, about two hours old. (laughs) (laughs) That says it all. Somebody said that to me one time. They said, you know, you really shouldn't eat this stuff more than three hours after it's manufactured if you want. And I thought to myself, that's so genuinely italian you know and and it of is. course they got to sell it and it's it's great when you go right. there even if it's a couple of days old but but i have the opposite story john because i used to go to the beach and buy a mozzarella at a stand on the way to the beach but we weren't allowed to eat it until the end of the day because my <laughs> neapolitan friend said it has to relax that's, so <laughs> that's like when we make easter pies and, and you know what? It's true. Everybody like if the, 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 those who are really into this stuff, they say it all the time. If you make the Easter grain pie pastiera, you know, you have to let them sit at room temperature for a day or so before cutting into them. Otherwise, it doesn't blend. It doesn't come together. But do you refrigerate a pastiera? That's a great question. Uh, it is. If you're scared, yes. If you're not like me, no. Yeah, well said. That's yeah. If you got the courage, you get you. you leave, I leave it out on the stove. I don't think a baked pie like that is. First of all, I never had one last more than a day, so it's a mood point. That's right. That's true. I don't bake it just to have it. You know, I bake it when there's somebody here to eat it. (laughs) Yeah, that's well said. Do you know what riddle I've solved? I think I've solved why the Chilento uses rice instead of grain in the Easter pie. In the Easter pie. Yeah. Because. Where my grandfather's from, they produce the basket cheese, the, the goat basket cheese, the cacharigata from the goat. Uh-huh. And before the war, or even into the 50s and 60s, that's what everybody used for their pastilla. When you mix that, it becomes a very liquid consistency. So you beat that with the sugar and the eggs and the cacharigata, which is soft, but it's like a day old. And then you bar cook the rice. Because as the egg cacharigata sugar uh, mixture is cooking in the pie crust, the rice cooks with it because the rice, you only cook about five minutes. And the rice absorbs the excess moisture from uh, that batter. Uh, That's why we're rice pastiera people. That makes a lot of sense. I always thought it was because I, I, I thought my, mine also made sense, but they both make sense. And mine was, I don't know. I mean, I never had grain pie with grain in it when I was a kid. Everybody either made it with barley or rice. Hmm. And I always thought that they couldn't get the grain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I know a lot of people that use barley if they can't. But that's almost died out in the Chilento. The Chilento now is almost all regatta. I only know one family that still makes the rice pastiera with what they call um, oh, pizzerias, that they still make with the um, goat cheese. Everybody else has switched over to regatta. Uh-huh. So there's one family holdout. Yeah. See, these are the things we go up to talk about. This is why we got him on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is, is what I mean. Yeah, and who else is gonna, you know, Patrick? Patrick O'Boyle. I, I love it. Um, <laughs> I, I assume your father is not from the south of Italy. My father is off the boat Irish. Came here as an adult. Yeah, figures. I have an affinity to Ireland and the Irish, as well as Neapolitans and Italians in general. But it, I always think that. Irish culture is actually a lot like Southern Italian culture. Um, I don't know. I always feel sort of like I'm in Naples when I'm in Ireland. Wow. I was in Rome in the 90s. And the South African lady said to me, she goes, she found out that my mother was Neapolitan. My father was Irish. She goes, you're dangerous. (laughs) You are very dangerous. Because that's a very dangerous combination. Well, in New York, it's the most common 
I don't know what to call it. Uh, intermarriage. intermarriage. Combination. Intermarriage. Thank you. Because you're both Catholic, but the Irish is exotic to the Italian and the Italian's exotic to the Irish, but you're still Catholic. Okay. Yeah, exactly what they're doing. Yeah, you got coverage there. You it got coverage, sure. right. But you hit the nail on the Irish when, in your New York book. Oh. Because you said the Irish don't have a cuisine, but they're very good at imitating other people's. Right. And that's modern Irish cookery, 100%. I, I, I've eaten extremely well. Now you can, absolutely. I mean, I was only there a few years ago. I, I spent, my last trip I spent in Kenmare, um, which is the most southern town in Ireland. And we had the best seafood that we'd ever had in our lives in Kenmare. Oh, isn't that the truth? They have fantastic, you want a real Neapolitan story? I'm going to tell you this because you'll appreciate this. So like I said, my father's off the boat, came here at 17. We're in Ireland in 2001, and my father's cousin takes us to the famine monument that's in Mayo, right off of the water. And they have this huge model famine ship, and it's all. Mm. So my father's cousin gets very um, poetic and starts saying to my mother, you know, like millions of us left this land in coffin ships and bound for America, enchained by the oppression of a British, the whole nine yards. And she, he starts talking about the starvation that Mayo had lost a third of its people to starvation. So my mother looks out into the water, and my mother said, but how did you starve? You're surrounded by water. Why didn't you eat fish? Question. <laughs> That's the most Neapolitan response. <laughs> yeah, it is a Neapolitan <laughs> question. The muscles in Ireland. I had the best muscles in July. Oh, the best muscles. They were fantastic. I'll tell you, you, you think about like muscles. And one of the things I noticed when I started going to Naples on a regular basis is our Italian-American tradition, because it had to travel over here, because ingredients were different, because food preservation was very different seafood history of naples the 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 culinary approach to seafood is so different in italian america than it is in naples i am always taken by the fact that i can go to any little neapolitan restaurant and really throughout the south throughout italy and get these exotic fish or crustaceans or things that i've never even heard of (laughs) and i mean i remember being at the port of naples one time and they were pulling up these crabs they look like they came out of a movie i've never seen anything like it before or since i I think they're some kind of spider crab or something but uh what comes out of that bay if you're a seafood person there's probably no better place i could think of but i have to say that it's not just in naples but everywhere in the world seafood is extremely expensive in, in Naples, I mean, I go to a place that's, yeah, I, we have to figure at least $80, $100 a person. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's, if you want the best fish in town that day. But it's the same here. I, yesterday, I was in the market. And I was going to buy some fish. I, I, mean, I don't know why I, these things come over me, but I have to have fried fish. Like any day now, I'm going to give in and buy. But I, the fish was so, it was $30 a pound for flounder fillets. Yeah, it's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, it's gone out of control. It is. You talk about the the hunt for fish and flounder fillet. So when COVID hit, you know, I started cooking my family's Christmas Eve dinner when I was 17, 18. After my grandfather died, my grandmother was getting older. And I said to her, I think somebody brought like smoked salmon one year. And I said, okay, why, why are we doing away with grandpa's recipes? And I asked my grandmother to teach me them. Anyway, the, I say all that to say during COVID, which is my immediate family. And we weren't going to do this big production. And my dad said, you know, let's do some of my mother's recipes that she had done when I was a kid and stopped doing by the time I, John, you were around. So we started, we made some flounder like my grandmother used to. And my dad said, I really want to get devilfish. 
And I said, Dad, what's a devil fish? And he said, you know, it's like. What's a devil fish? Right? So he goes, he goes, I don't know. My mom used to make it. I, it's a recipe I had not got from my grandmother before she died. It was like a kind of spicy, kind of liquidy tomato sauce for the galamad, but it was different than galamad. And so I, I spent a week before Christmas trying to figure this thing out, and I could find nothing. And so I did an approximation of it, whatever. So the next summer, the restrictions had ebbed a little bit, and my wife was pregnant. So my parents and my wife and I went to visit some family friends in Priano. And my wife and I decided to take a couple of days of kind of baby moon by ourselves. And so my dad, my mom, and their friend and some local friends went out night fishing. And my dad sent me this amazing video because these guys referred to uh, what's, I guess, called Totena, Totono. It's like a long red. It's a, it's the brown kind of squid. Totono. Yeah, and it's like kind of long, and and that they they referred to it as devilfish. Oh, really? Yeah. So they pulled this thing out. Huh. Yeah, they, they never heard that. these things, and neither did I. And it, they made my dad, my grandmother's recipe to the T, as their grandmother had made it, and it was this great mystery solved. And of course, I don't, I don't know anywhere in the U.S. you can get the totino. You can I get it in Newark. This. You can get it in New Jersey. No, I had it recently. In fact, you did. Yeah, um, I have to remember where, but. I don't eat out very much these days, but I did have it, and I certainly didn't cook it. You can get it at the fish markets in Newark. Uh, you know what? I, I, I Wait a second. Wait a second. I take that back. I was in Rome at the end oh, of okay. May. So it was in Rome. That I ate. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> it's actually, I, I always think of it as a specialty of Capri. Hmm. Because the, uh, mainly, mainly because the first time I ever ate it was on Capri with potatoes. Yeah, with potatoes. Yes, with potatoes. And of course, Priano being so close to Capri, that makes a lot of sense. And that's how they wanted to make it with potatoes. They had to do this research and track down this old recipe. But yeah, I I would love to make it. Like these are the kind of things to me, how great is this country? You can find a a local recipe like this that's so unique and nobody else is doing it. And you could travel up and down the, the length of that peninsula and all the islands and you could never encounter it until one day somebody decides to share it with you. That, that to me is the gift of this Neapolitan cuisine. And, and also, yes. Also Neapolitan cuisine is so varied yeah. compared to, you know, you use the expression Northern Italian a while back in this conversation. And I always like to say there is no such thing as Northern Italian food because until 1861, they were all a bunch of different places with their own regional cuisines Yep. Whereas the South was ruled by the same family and had a lot more in common with each other. I mean, it was a Spanish family originally. And they introduced all these new world ingredients to the South of Italy, not to the North of Italy, but tomatoes, potatoes, vanilla, chocolate. Uh, what else, guys? I mean, the whole list of ingredients. I would say Neapolitan cuisine is an old world cuisine made with new world ingredients. Wow, that's well said. So it's very cosmopolitan, Southern Italian food, whereas the Northern is very regional. So on that note, some friends of mine, very good friends, just came back from two weeks in Florence and another week on the coast of Tuscany. And they said we didn't eat well at all. (laughs) Yeah, we had a good steak in Florence. The best thing that they ate was an egg salad made by a mutual friend of ours who made lunch for them one day. She lives in Florence. And I said, oh, what was in the, in the egg salad? So they didn't really know, although they should have because they're food people. Hmm. 
Um, but I, so I, this is somebody who I'm in communication with. So I wrote to, to her and said, you know, what, what did you do? So she said, first of all, she lives in, in, in Florence and has, I'm sure, the best olive oil in the world. She said it was nothing but warm, chopped eggs with a lot of olive oil, a whole lemon, including the rind, diced small, and uh, that's it. Eggs, oil, lemon, and celery leaves. Did I say celery leaves? No, but I love celery leaves. I like celery leaves too. In fact, the other day, I saved some celery leaves to make this egg salad. Celery leaves are a Neapolitan ingredient that has disappeared in Italian-American cooking. Because my grandmother used them, but I think also the Neapolitan varieties of celery have bigger leaves than the American one. You know, it's very strong tasting. So you bring me, I just this morning used up my last bit of local celery. Uh, The first part of the the bunch of celery I used to make a caponata last week. And it's very tough. Our local celery that I get at my farmer's market is a lot like... Italian celery, which is not Pascal. I don't know what the variety is, but what we buy in the supermarket is has been bred to be these big, juicy ribs. Um, in Italy, there, I, I don't know. I don't know many people in Italy who use celery except as for battuta, except you know, just to make a sauce or a soup. You know, it's funny you say that because uh, when, again, as I, I learned my Christmas recipes from my grandfather and then my grandmother and my grandfather was adamant that American celery was terrible, but he always made us go out looking for the biggest leaved celeries because when we made mm. our cold bacala salad for Christmas Eve, uh, it was much more important to him to have the oh. celery leaves than the celery stock. That was a big, big deal. Oh, wow. I, I'm going to do yeah. that with bacala. I love bacala. How could you? I mean, that bacala. I love bacala. Oh. I know, but I must tell you that I know lots of people who won't eat it. So I love it. Celery marries with bacala. Yeah, it does. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah. Also, you know, it's, it's you know that in Eastern European cooking, they use a lot of lovage, L-O-V-A-G-E. Yeah. Which actually it both looks and tastes like celery. Yeah, you know, it's so funny you say that because so, somebody compared that to, um, somebody compared lovage. I was trying to explain to an American person, uh, Carduna. That we, uh, I, I get that from my Sicilian side, and I said, you know, it's it's kind of an, a, a hybrid between s- Jurassic celery and artichoke, and they said, oh, probably like lovage, and I had never heard of it, mm. and it's something I've always wanted to see if if it panned out to be similar. No, I don't think cardoons taste like uh, lovage. No, no, I and I, I mean, cardoons are a kind of thistle. It's a, it's it is a first cousin to artichokes. I have to ask you another question. Do you think pasta di Gragnano makes a difference? Pasta from Gragnano? Um, I think it depends. I think it depends on on the pastificio. I mean, there are better and worse ones. I would say that in general, it's very high quality pasta. Yeah, yeah, I like Gragnano pasta. Do you have any? What's your opinion, Patrick? I love it. I do think it makes a difference. Uh, Gragnese pasta Gragnese. I used to buy Martino which is still around somewhere, but um, and then well, I don't know. You know, Faella. You can't get much better than faella, although they charge it an arm and a leg for it. Once you get used to it, I have to admit, I only buy gran. I, there's a uh, one Graniano brand I buy, and I think once you get used to it, you get spoiled. You can taste the difference after. What what brand? Pasta Graniano, I think. Pasta Graniese. I have to look it up. I bu- I buy it in large quantities. 
there are a few artisanal producers in Salerno, and there's actually a shop in Salerno that sells them all, specializes in specialty pasta. Next time you're in Salerno, find it. It's on, it's on, I have to ask you. Yeah. When is your website, Food Maven, going back up? Because people Never. are constantly, oh, why? Because people are constantly asking us for recommendations in Campania. You're the king. I want to send them to your website. Well, I know, but no, no, not anymore. I'll tell you why. Because nobody went to it. It was so old. It was. I started that in 1998. Wow. You know, in 24 years, the technology is so dramatically different that nobody was even able to update it. So I, I was offered a nice little bit of money to take over the name, uh, which was the foodmaven.com. And so I took it. <laughs> Because you 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 have so many good recommendations for Naples and Campania. I mean, you have the little black book of where to go to eat. No, Patrick, Patrick, you. I would love for you to come to my house in Brooklyn. Oh my God, we'd be honored. Where are you? Did you say you're in Boston? No, I'm in Boston for. Uh, I'm actually here for a NIAF event, but I'm a I'm a Jersey guy, one hundred percent. Oh, you're Jersey. Well, I, I I have, and I have not thrown them out yet. Danielle Oteri and, and Christian, her husband, came over and took some things. But I have literally four feet of pamphlets, booklets, oh, wow. guidebooks, notes, and all on Southern Italy that I would love to hand over to somebody who appreciates them. And you said, I, I think, Patrick, I think I just... I, just, I found the guy. I think you just made his year. I'm on the floor. I'm fainting. They're picking me up <laughs> off the floor. I found the guy. Yeah, you sure oh, absolutely. did. I'm going to cry now. And it's no coincidence that Danielle and Christian are so uh, are great friends of Pat's. Yeah, they, they are. Yeah, I love them so much. They are wonderful people. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, you can't beat those two. They are the greatest. Yes, I love them very yeah. much. I, I, They've both been on the show. Uh, uh, you know, I know Danielle from before she became Miss Arthur Avenue. <laughs> and she sure is. And started running trips to Italy because she was a medieval art historian at, and lectured at the, at the cloisters. Yes. Yeah, and she still gives lectures, I think, right? She's, she still gives lectures. She's no, she's a very accomplished art historian. She's uh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. She's a very, and a very engaging lecturer, by the way. So um, anyway, so, Nick Patrick, if you ever see Granoro pasta, try it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's not that old-fashioned heavy. I love faella, but it is a little heavy. And what's the other Neapolitan one? Um, the one from Torre del Greco, Setaro. Setaro, right. Now, Torre Nunziato, no Torre Nunziata. Matter of fact, one of our listeners, his grandfather, patented. They were, he was from Torre Nunziata and patented one of the mechanisms that they use for pasta production there, Nick Sombrato. Oh, interesting. Oh, all right. If you if you can't eat the pasta you love, what would be your next choice in the supermarket? Oh, maybe Citato. That's I, I think uh, No, it's not they're not having it in the supermarket though. No, but I'm in New Jersey. You can get a lot in New Jersey. I'm in I'm in the heart of Jersey. I mean So what would you recommend to our listeners in North Dakota? Decheco. Decheco. You think Decheco but is that, is that the American grade, the Checo? Well, whatever it is, it's, it, I like their spaghetti because I like thick spaghetti. And they, they make a thickish spaghetti. 
And I, I, I think it's very good pasta. I like rumo. That's available in supermarkets these days. Yeah, that's Neapolitan. I don't buy Barilla. Um, the only time I would buy Barilla is sometimes if you're making a baked pasta, I find Barilla can hold up better in the oven mm. than some others. Really? But I don't buy Barilla. You know what? I, have, I, I don't turn my nose up at Ranzoni anymore either because Ranzoni has improved dramatically since I was a boy even though that was our pasta of choice when I was a boy. Sure, that was our go-to. That's why I often feel we, we all ran away from Ronzoni. We did. Like, I remember when La, Mol- when La Molizana came into the supermarket and my grand- uh, it was like it was like, it was like this, wow. Because now you could go to ShopRite and get Italian-made macaroni. And then we all kind of dropped Ronzoni. La Molizana was the first person in the affair. I, I, I used to love La Molizana. I haven't had it in years, it reminds me of Pat and I took a trip to Miami. Not a work trip. Nothing nothing for the show. Not, it was not intended in any way to be an Italian-American trip. Of course, it turned into one. We had a concert at night, and the morning... Let's uh, confess, I, wa- I love Debbie Gibson. Yes. John, we, John, we, we, John, I'm not going to go into uh, details. Yeah. John allowed me to meet the I greatest arranged singer. arranged Pat to yeah, meet correct. Debbie Gibson. Italian-American from Long Island who's one of the greatest artists in the history of humanity. <laughs> and John made it happen. I didn't think about that. Absolutely. You met Debbie Gibson. Now you met Arthur Schwartz. I think you're done. your checklist I is done. I'm, I'm, I'm done. The bucket list is done. <laughs> but we went to Miami and we had nothing to do in the morning. And sure enough, I opened up the newspaper and it says, I'm going to forget the business's name. Historic Italian-American business closes today, 70 years, whatever. So we went. It was a great Italian market, big place, family owned. They were selling the property and it was packed with people. And we found everything was, you know, priced to move. I don't know how much Grignano pasta Pat took out of that place, but I think we cleaned them out. I think we took everything they had left. <laughs> I'm a cleaner out because I go to closing Italian stores and I get nostalgic and I'm an addict. <laughs> I, I can't. Be. That's why me and I have a podcast. This is the places we go to, the things we talk about. <laughs> We cross. That's we so have a true. video series. We go across America looking for Italian stores, mm-hmm. and people watch us, which I'll never understand. But you get that. Oh, I I, I listened to one of your uh, little Italian communities somewhere, Texas, maybe. We've gone to San Diego. We've gone to Arkansas. Oh, that's it. It was in Arkansas. Yeah. Well, you know, Brooklyn uh, has changed, as you all guys know very well, but we still have a substantial Italian population here, and so we can get. I feel I can get anything I want Italian here in Brooklyn. I have to say that I have a number of expatriate American friends living in Rome and other places in Italy, and they all think that we are, uh, it's 1975 here. When they left, you can get pancetta. I I can buy pancetta in the key food, not even a specialty supermarket. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's the beauty of how Italian cuisine has impacted the world and this, you know, you, you really can get much of it here. You're not going to get the quality of maybe produce that you want, like you would in a, any local if you market shop there. And yeah, you got to shop, you know? Yeah. You got to shop. I'm a shopper. If you're a good shopper, you can come close to stuff in Italy. Yes. If you, you can make it happen. I do make it happen. But what am I going to do with this ragu that I don't like the taste of the meat? Uh, my father would love that. The opportunity to doctor up a ragu, my father would be, it'd be like a scientist lab. He'd have all kinds of stuff out. So no, I'm going to combine, I've decided I'm going to combine it with the pork ragu I have in the freezer and, and, and see what happens. Maybe I'll make a, a, you know what I've been craving? This is silly. 
but um, Sicilian baked pasta, you know, anelli. I was just thinking that. Yeah, maybe baked. Oh, with the peas. The peas, and the I, peas I have and some yeah. peas, too, yeah. But I don't have any cacciacavallo. Do you know what they used to tell me in Piano di Sorrento? That up until the 70s, they ne- didn't even use the um, pecorino romano. They would use cacciacavallo um, grated. Yeah. Or, they sh- or the, the cows, the pezzutella. Yeah, I was very surprised at that. I only found it out recently. I was going to tell you the Parma story from Cecilia. So Cecilia's mother uh, uh, lived in Parma during her early child rearing years. And, and of course, learned a lot. She loved to cook. Senora Elvira. She loved to cook. So she made all these parmense things. And for a Christmas dinner, or not Christmas Eve, but for Christmas dinner, everybody, five daughters and their families, went to Elvira's for a Christmas dinner, including Arthur. And her, the big deal at Christmas dinner was capaletti. And every year she would boast, ah, I made 800 capaletti <laughs> this year. Oh, I made 1,200 capaletti this year. And, and I was always questioning this. And Cecilia says, you know, she supervises the preparation of 800 capoletti. <laughs> she, she doesn't do it herself. There's a Neapolitan phrase to boss people around is more enjoyable than sex. That's the actual Neapolitan <laughs> phrase. That's I, about I, right. I, I get that. So that's Naples in a nutshell. <laughs> that reminds me of an Italian story somebody told me from right after unification. They said, after unification, a Neapolitan man was sitting on the Ungomari with a fishing pole catching his lunch. And this Milanese got off the train and came down by the water and he, he walks past. He's in a nice suit and a big hat and uh, very well put together. And he says this Neapolitan who's Skugnitsa who's sitting there in an sh- open shirt. He says, um, what are you doing? Middle of the day. He says, oh, I'm just fishing. The Milanese says, do you catch a lot of fish? He says, yeah, I do pretty well. He says, well, you think you do enough for two poles? The guy says, yeah, I could probably two poles. He says, you know, maybe if you had two poles, you could get enough to sell and then you could hire a second person and, you know, they can get four poles. And Neapolitan says, okay. And he says, you know, and I think about it now, if you do that, you'll make enough money where you can hire a crew, maybe a boat and you can go out. He goes, you could have a really <laughs> nice industry. And then maybe you could spend the afternoons relaxing while they're working. And the Neapolitan looks at him and says, what do you think I was doing before you got here? And that's the <laughs> Neapolitan mentality, you know, it's like, why not focus on the priorities in life? Good food, Good life, good friends. Well, focused on the day. Yeah, focus on the day. Neapolitans do have an ability to, you know, close it out and enjoy the day. You think that's because they live in the shadow of that volcano? Yes, I do. Yeah. You think because you pass by that time bomb yes. all day and you figure one day it's going to blow? Well, I agree. That also, you live very close to each other. It's a very congested city. Yeah. And even outside the city, it's congested. <laughs> Have you ever, you know? That's true. Isn't Naples this year the culture capital of Europe? Something like that. They've just been designated. Yes. Naples oh. has been designated like art and culture capital for a year. For 2023? I get. I have to look this up. Yeah, I would love to. That That's a good excuse for us to go. And, you know, we've been planning for a long time to do tours with our listeners. And now that we're getting back to normal travel, I think it's something we're going to cook up. Oh, well, then you need my tour book. No, this is what's going to happen. John's going to plan tours with our listeners. John will stay home and Pat will go. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> that's, that's not true. No, that's true. John, I love my listeners. I have, I have no problem with it. Gentlemen, gentlemen, you've got to keep in touch. You got to, Absolutely. Oh, yeah, we're coming and, over. And what, yeah, I definitely want to give you this With Danielle. Stuff. Absolutely. You have found 
the perfect person. And uh, I promise you, we'll be we'll be together within a matter of uh, days if if we have any control over that. I'm around. I'm not going anywhere. Oh, that's awesome. That, this has been so much fun, and thank you for taking so much time. And we really appreciate it. And we are looking forward to it. And me too. And I got a hum, John, because I forgot my gazoo. All right, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as we have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born an Italiano.